You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If the Lord has paid your ransom, let him know it. Just shout it out. Amen. Thank you, guys. It's good to see you today. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We uh, wrapped up Jeremiah last week. Next few weeks, we're just going to walk through a portion of the Gospel of John as we kind of prepare ourselves for the Passion Week and um, leading up to Resurrection Sunday and, of course, the crucifixion and, and all of that. We um, have in this chapter today, we're going to look at the whole chapter, so don't start looking at your watch now. Uh, <laughs> we're going to walk through this chapter. There's, there's six, six profiles that I want to show you in this chapter of how people have responded to Jesus and I, I think what we're going to see here is maybe, um, well, a connection between maybe where you are and where some of these folks are. They're in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a critical chapter in the Gospel of John. And there's a lot happening here. So I'm glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, for all those who are watching online, I'm glad that you're tuned in as well. So pick it up in John chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he, helped him, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Father in heaven, we pause this morning to say thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the ways you have worked in our lives this past week. Father, one of the great privileges and benefits of serving this fellowship is seeing how you're working in the lives of people through answered prayers, through interventions, through provision. Father, you have done extraordinary things. And Father, help us to not be so distracted to be so consumed with our technology or so distracted by our schedules that we don't see day to day just the, all the ways that you're working in our life. And Father, from that, to be grateful. Father, we live in a, in a world that is broken and, and filled with hate. And Father, you have called us to be light in a dark world. And one of the best ways to do that is, Father, for us to live with joy and peace to have kindness on our lips, to be gentle with the people around us, to be ready to give a testimony of what you've done in our lives, and, Father, to never be ashamed of the gospel. Father, that's the task you've called us to. That's, for those of us who already believe, that's why we're still here on this planet. So, Father, we thank you for what you've done, what you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you're about to do. And Father, we seek your guidance this morning above all things. We ask this in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen. 
Do you know what the difference is between a skeptic and a cynic? Between skepticism and cynicism? Well, I want to I want to tell you a little bit about what those differences are because we're going to meet some skeptics and we're going to meet some cynics and we're going to meet some people in Scripture over the next few weeks that given all that they've seen and all that they've experienced, even in the text I just read, it's incredible to me how many people still do not believe in Jesus' day and how many people today still refuse to believe. The, the skeptic is the person who, well, doesn't want to be taken advantage of. The skeptic is the person who wants to weigh out the facts. The skeptic is the one who's willing to hear you out. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to believe you the first time they hear you, but they're going to check what you're saying versus someone else and what they're saying. So the skeptic is willing to look at the evidence that you're giving them and someone else is giving them, and maybe a half dozen other people, their evidence, and they're willing to weigh all of that out and make a decision on what is true and what is false. The skeptic will say this, I, I don't think that it's true, but I'm going to check that out. Maybe, maybe your skepticism rises up when you go to buy a car <laughs> and you want to check things out before you uh, sign on the dotted line. And the car salesman's telling you, oh, there's a $10,000 rebate. We're just going to take that off the price of the car. And you, you think, now, wait a minute. I see the bottom number here. I don't really see where that $10,000 came off. And they take you through all of the gymnastics of mathematics there to show you how you actually got $10,000 when, in fact, they just marked the car up $10,000. So you might be a little skeptical there. You might be a little skeptical when uh, you get the phone call from the politician or their team of people who want you to vote for them. Those calls are getting ready to pick up dramatically here in the next few months. And the person on the other line is promising you all the things that this person is going to do for you if you'll just vote for them. Well, you voted for them last time, and you still haven't seen them accomplish all that they said they would accomplish. So, yeah, you're a little bit skeptical. You're willing, you're willing to hear them out, uh, but you're willing to weigh that out based off some experiences and maybe some other candidates. The person who's a cynic, though, is different. Let me, let me tell you the difference. The cynic is willing to say, I don't know that that is true, or I know that that is not true. The cynic says, I know that it is not true. It couldn't be. So here's what I'm going to do. Instead of weighing out what you're saying with someone else through reasoning, they attack you. Are we not seeing that play out today in our world? We're not hearing reason and logic in the public square. What we're hearing is cynicism that turns into attacks, personal attacks. If, if you've ever been personally attacked simply because you hold a position on something and the person that you're talking to is not willing to reason with you, what you are talking to is not a skeptic, you're talking to a cynic, and there is a big difference between the two. The cynic is not willing to consider any other arguments. They have decided what they're going to believe, and it doesn't matter what evidence you give them, they're not going to believe it, they're not going to consider your argument, they're not going to reason with you, and what they're going to ultimately end up doing is attacking you. The cynic is the one who decides what is true and what is false without even considering the evidence at all. Maybe I've just described you. Maybe, maybe in the room today we've got some skeptics. You know, I've been hearing about Jesus. I've been hearing about this Easter season, this resurrection that I keep hearing. I'm going to tell you, I'm skeptical about it. Well, great. If you're a skeptical, I invite you to have a conversation. 
If you've been attending church for years, or maybe today's the first time, if, if you're skeptical about this whole thing that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks, about Jesus dying, graveyard dead, resurrecting the third day, I invite you to sit down with me and let's have lunch or let's have dinner, and let me share with you why I believe this is the absolute truth. So if you're skeptical, great, let's have a conversation about it. But listen, if you're cynical, if you're cynical, let me tell you where that's taking you. Your heart's growing colder with every passing day. And the more you reject the truth, the further you get from the truth. The, f- the harder it is to even recognize what is true and what is false. In, G- in John's gospel, chapter 12 is a key chapter. Matter of fact, the reason I wanted to start here is because chapter 12 is a critical chapter in the gospel of John. In gospel of John, in chapter 12, all the way up to this chapter, Jesus has been performing signs and miracles. Now, a sign, the Greek word is seimon, seimon is the Greek word, and simply it means this. It means that, that Jesus has performed miracles, things that cannot be explained. He has set aside the natural order of things, and he has intervened and, and changed the course of an event. And every time that Jesus does this is for the purpose of revealing who he is. So in the Gospel of John, the very first sign that Jesus does is in chapter 2 when he turns the water into wine. Now, you understand that, that water does not turn into wine. That if you've got a, a jug of water, that water will be water from now on. It's not just going to on its own turn to wine. So Jesus sets aside natural order. He sets aside what is naturally true, and he intervenes and does a miracle, turns water into wine. That was the first sign. The second sign that he does is he heals the nobleman's son. The nobleman's son was death, near death, and Jesus heals him even at a distance. That's in chapter 4. In chapter 6, Jesus performs another incredible miracle. This particular miracle impacts everyone who sees it. As a matter of fact, probably somewhere around, around 10,000 people or more experienced this miracle in chapter 6. They don't have enough food to feed this large crowd of people. Jesus says, well, what do we have? And they have a few fish and a few loaves of bread. So Jesus prays over this bread, and they begin to pass it out in baskets, and they feed over 10,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Now think about the impact. Every time the basket would come by you, you would reach in and there would always be more bread and more fish. Well, everybody started talking about this son. Everybody was enthralled with Jesus and what he could do. And then in chapter 9, he heals a blind man, a man who was blind from birth. And this particular miracle in chapter 9 is one of my favorites in all the New Testament because this, the crowd, the Pharisees, don't believe that this was the guy who was, who was blind. And Jesus takes spit and some dirt and mud, rubs it in his eyes and tells him to go wash. And he washes and his vision is restored. But then in chapter 11, probably the greatest of all signs that Jesus did is there's a guy in a tomb who's been dead for four days. Jesus goes to the tomb and there are people outside the tomb who are mourning because their friend has died. And Jesus Jesus says something that is pretty much unimaginable. He says, take the stone off the cave. The people around the tomb are like, Jesus, you don't really understand here. He's been dead four days which means his body was already decomposing. The evidence of that is when they take the stone off, there's a smell in the air. Jesus prays a prayer, 
And then he shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And out of the back of the tomb, a dead man walks. He's wrapped in cloth. They wrapped him in cloth as they prepared the body. So he would have had to kind of come walking out like this. Now, there's a joke I always tell at this moment, and I think it's funny even after I tell it the hundredth time. What's the first thing that ran through Lazarus' mind at that moment? What's the first thing that Lazarus thought of right in that moment? What's that smell? Well, it was him just about 30 seconds earlier. His body was already rotting, and Jesus calls him back to life. After all of these signs and miracles, how in the world would no one believe? I mean, think about this. There are people who are still rejecting Jesus as Messiah. The text that I just read as we, as we look at this, they are sitting at a table with a man who was just dead. His body was rotting. His flesh was already decomposing. That dude is sitting at the table eating a meal with Jesus. Now, how in the world is it that not everyone in Judea and Jerusalem is falling flat on their face saying, this guy is the Son of God. This guy's the Messiah. If he can do that, is there ever any doubt about who he is? Yet today what we're going to see is six different groups of people. Some are individuals, some are groups, and I want you to see how they respond to Jesus. And it's also at chapter 12 that Jesus says there's no longer going to be any more signs. The only sign that is Jesus is going to do is he's going to die and he's going to resurrect. There'll be no more miracles. The crowds are asking, hey, Jesus, do something else and we'll believe. Do another miracle. Well, he's, he's raised people from the dead. He's healed people from leprosy. He's given deaf people their hearing back. He's given a blind man since birth his sight, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. What else do you want? Yet they still didn't believe. What I suspect is going to happen as we look at these six profiles is you're going to see yourself in one of them. That's my hope. Is that you're going to see yourself in one of these six profiles. So let's take a look at the first two. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they gave him a dinner. And Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. So think of the setting here. They... They don't have a dining room table like you have where they're sitting in chairs. When the Bible says that they were reclining, what it means is that there was a very low table and that they were either sitting with their legs crossed or they were reclining back on their shoulder, almost kind of, almost laying down. So you have all these people, all these guests around this table. So it's a very intimate setting. Now Jesus was, was very close friends with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. As we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus would often end up in Bethany. And whether the text tells us directly they were at the house of Mary and Martha, or it's kind of in the background, you can know for sure that Bethany in this particular home was kind of a base of operations for Jesus. So anytime Jesus was in Bethany, he was hanging out with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now you remember a little bit about Mary and Martha. If you go back to Luke 10, you don't have to turn over there, verse 36 and following. There's a story of where Jesus comes to their house for the very first time. And he, he's going to have a meal with them. And, and Martha is really, really busy. She's in the kitchen. She's cooking. She's getting all this stuff ready because the rabbi, Jesus, is coming to their house. She comes out and realizes that Mary, her sister, is just sitting out there listening to Jesus talk. So Martha comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can you, can you do something with my sister and tell her to get in the kitchen? 
Quite frankly, in that culture, that's kind of where she belonged. Don't take that the wrong way. That culture, the women didn't hang out out there where, while the rabbi was teaching. They would have been preparing the meal. But guess where Mary is? Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And guess what Jesus says to Martha? Hey, Martha, you're busy about many things, but your sister Mary, she's chosen the best thing. So fast forward now, three years. And where do we find Mary again? At the feet of Jesus. I, I think there's something very important about that. Mary saw something in Jesus that I think even some of the disciples didn't see. Notice what happens in this room. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. At some point, Mary gets up from the table she goes maybe in a back room somewhere, maybe over in a, in a chest somewhere. She pulls out this alabaster box and she breaks the seal on it. And inside of this box is an ointment that was very rare and very expensive. This ointment that she had, a pound of it, was worth a year's salary. And no doubt she'd been saving this for a long time. She spent a lot of money to buy it. And there's something at this moment that Mary decides that there's never going to be a greater moment than this moment. And she goes and she breaks the seal on that and she begins to take out this ointment that would have been the consistency of something like butter. And she begins to, to rub Jesus' feet with this ointment. And we also think that, 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 that she put it on his head and it began to run down his face and the entire room was filled with this fragrance. It's in this moment that Mary doesn't care about religious inhibitions that said, as a woman, she wasn't supposed to be in there. In this moment, Mary was not worried about the fact that religious culture said that she was never supposed to take her hair down in a setting like this, but yes, she did. She, she wasn't worried about what other people were going to think in that moment. She wasn't worried about, oh, somebody's going to think something here if I, if I worship Jesus in this way. At that moment, Mary cared nothing about who was in the room. She cared nothing about the cost of that ointment. She cared nothing about the plans that she had for that ointment. She would have had plans. They, they would have put it in their clothes. They would have used it at special festivals. They would have used it at special times. And she could have used it for years. She cared nothing about it. At that moment, all she cared about is worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords because she, and maybe one of the only people in the room, maybe other than a few of the disciples, she recognized that Jesus was more than just a man. And Mary walks by all the religious culture of the day, all the things that would have said no to her, don't do this. She threw all that to the wind and said, in this moment, I'm going to worship him. There are people in this room that we have the privilege of having as part of this fellowship called Hyde Park who live their life like this, who, who for, for reckless abandonment will give everything they have to simply worship Jesus. They, they, will, they will give sacrificially. They, 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 will, they will get to the end of the month and they'll see that they've got more bills than they've got income. But yet they'll give sacrificially when needs come up. They give of their time. They give of their talent. They don't want to pat on the back. They're simply here to worship Jesus in whatever way they can. Thank God for you.
It is a privilege to serve alongside you. You've taught me a lot of things. This church has taught me a lot about what it means to worship and honor Jesus. So the first profile we have here is Mary the worshiper. Maybe this describes you. Thank God for you. And I hope that God blesses you abundantly more than you could ever think or imagine. But there's someone else in the room. Let's look at the second person. Judas, verse 4. One of the disciples who was about to betray Jesus said this, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Judas can't help himself. And Judas, he's the fake. Now, he's not the betrayer yet. He's going to be the betrayer, but I'm calling him here Judas the fake. He's the faker. He's the one that looks like a disciple, but it really isn't. And, And the fake disciple will always show their hand at some point. A fake, false disciple who's playing games will always show who they really are. Well, for Judas, this just happens to be one of those times where he's going to show who he really is. You see, Judas cared more about the ointment than he did Jesus. Instead of enjoying the moment of worship, Instead, he's castigating this woman as a wasteful person who didn't see the worth of the nard that she had. Rather, she sees the worth of Jesus who's in their presence. Judas saw exactly the opposite. A false disciple will always see the value of something else over Jesus, always. Whether it be time, treasure, the gifts that they've got, they'll always use them somewhere else, not in the worship and adoration of Jesus or his mission that he's given us. He says, why was this not sold and given to the poor? Now, that sounds pretty pious, doesn't it? Wow, Judas, you're such a good guy. You're such a pious kind of guy. Well, John gives us the background here. Matter of fact, this is some of the only background we've got about Judas. Judas wasn't caring that much about the poor as much as he was about himself. You see, Judas was the kind of the guy He was kind of like the treasurer for the disciples. He kind of kept the bag of money, and there were people giving to Jesus' ministry. I I would imagine that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus has financed some of Jesus' ministry. More than likely, there's money in that bag that Mary has given, and Martha has given, and Lazarus has given. Well, guess what Judas is doing? He's taking ownership over something that was never his own. And he's dipping in the money bag and putting money in his pocket, And then we find out the real motivation of Judas the fake. Judas the fake is about himself and about no one else. Judas the fake is about what he can get. Remember, he's going to sell Jesus out for what? For some money? What a contrast we have here. Mary worshiping, giving the last dime she's got, and Judas taking what he can get. Mary, seeing Jesus in this moment, understanding who Jesus is and worshiping him alone, while Judas is only there to take what he can get. And he's using Jesus' ministry to profit himself. Well, there wouldn't be anybody like that in our local churches, would they? Could there be people in the local church who are only part of that church because they're benefiting somehow, some way from it? Could it be that there are people who are involved in local ministries who are only there as consumers? Judas is a consumer. He's not a worshiper. 
The way you know the difference is the heart. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was concerned about money in his back pocket. The interesting thing about people like Judas, fakers, they will wrap themselves in religious piety. Oh, we got to help the poor. All while at the same time have an underlying agenda. Do you associate more with, with Mary the worshiper or Judas the faker who's playing a game? Let's check out the next group of people. Let's turn over to verse 12. Now, this is a crowd of people, a crowd of people that seem to also be worshiping Jesus. Look at this in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we have this, this Palm Sunday event where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem for the last time. And there are people there, a crowd of people that have gathered, and they've cut down palm branches, and they're laying them in the road. Notice verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jump on down to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So here's what's happening. The crowd of people that's gathered there on this road as Jesus is riding on a donkey to come into Jerusalem, they're laying down these branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel. Now it seems from the outside that they're worshiping Jesus. It seems like they recognize him as Messiah. It would seem as though they understand who Jesus is. Well, the reality is, is they actually don't know who he is. You see that word Hosanna? The word Hosanna means save us. So they are literally crying out to Jesus as Jesus is riding on this donkey, come and save us. Now what do you think they're asking Jesus to save them from? Is it from their sins? No. Because even though Jesus has talked about a crucifixion, I'm pretty confident these people don't recognize what's about to happen in Jerusalem in just a few days. The reason they're saying, blessed is the king of Israel, save us, they have heard and some of them have seen what Jesus did at Lazarus' tomb. And here's what they're thinking. If this guy, if this king can raise people from the dead, then there is no Roman Caesar that's going to be able to stand against him. So Jesus, the kind of king that we want, is the king that's going to come into Jerusalem. He is going to take up a sword, and we are going to rise up as God's people, God's chosen people. And we are going to take out the Romans and rush them out of the city. We're going to take our city back where our 12 tribes are going to be reunited, and we're going to reign with power, authority, and yes, there's going to be some financial benefit along with that. This crowd, you know who they are? They're the ones that are seeking prosperity. They're not seeking a cross. They're, they're not thinking about taking up a cross and following Jesus, although he said that multiple times. This crowd is saying, yeah, give us a king who can give us what we want. There's actually not a lot of difference between this crowd and Judas. The only difference is it's on a larger scale. 
And Judas had a front seat to everything Jesus did and still didn't believe. This crowd has saw Lazarus and heard about Lazarus being raised from the dead. He was even sitting in a house eating a meal with Jesus. These people are like, well, that's the kind of king we've got coming into Israel. Well, we're all going to be better off. We're all going to have prosperity. We're all going to have it made. By the way, this same type of thinking had crept into the twelve. John and his brother James were thinking the same thing. Peter was thinking the same thing. You see, they're anticipating a powerful throne. Jesus is anticipating a cross. Those who are seeking prosperity, they are actually willing to pray a prayer. They're actually willing to get baptized as long as they get some benefits from it. As long as I get something back, kind of goes back to the consumer mentality. As long as I have all my needs met, as long as I have no hardships, as long as I get to reign as a king, as long as I get to have everything, then certainly give me that Jesus. Give me the Jesus that, uh, well, he just loves everybody. He just doesn't really say anything harsh. I mean, we don't want the Jesus who says things like, unless you repent, you're going to be cast away from God forever. Don't give us the Jesus that talks about a literal place called Hades or hell. Don't, don't give us that Jesus. Give us the Jesus that's going to give us all that we want. American Christianity has become a consumer Christianity. I'll follow Jesus as long as you give me what I want. The very moment it gets hard, the very moment it costs me something, the very moment I have to take up that cross and suffer any shame of it, I'm done. I'm out of here. Let, let a pandemic come. And I'm gone. Consumer is the crowd. Consumers are the crowd that is gathered that day. They're not worshiping Jesus as a sacrifice who's going into Jerusalem to lay down his life. They're worshiping as a king that they have in their mind that's going to give them everything that they want. So we have Mary the worshiper. We have Judas the fake. We have the crowd that is seeking prosperity. But then we have a strange group of people show up into this narrative. They show up in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks or some Gentiles. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, I call this group the group of outsiders. These are the people that were looked down upon by everyone in Jerusalem. I think an illustration would help at this point. Let's imagine in our mind's eye a real, real fancy, big, huge cathedral church. I'm talking the spires. I'm talking all the ornate decorations. I'm talking about high church. And let's imagine that you go into that church and everyone there, every, every man in the room is wearing an expensive suit and every woman is wearing a really, really nice dress. Maybe the church is in an urban city and that's just the culture of that church. Nothing wrong with that. They've got a big, humongous choir loft, a huge pop organ, and the choir comes out, and they've got their robes on, and everything is pristine and perfect. At about that time, out in the parking lot, we hear the rumbling of what sounds like Harley Davidson's. 
And the next thing you know, a biker gang rolls up into the parking lot, parks their bike right along, bikes right along the building. And they come in the building. They've got their leather vest on, and they've got the piercings, and they got all the tattoos, and they got all the leather on, and the spikes on, and long hair and long beards. And they walk in and they say, "We want to put our faith. We want to believe. We want to follow this guy named Jesus." Now, do you think it's going to be a little awkward there for about ten or fifteen minutes? Yeah. It'll be a little awkward. These Greeks were like the biker gang. People looked down upon them because of the way they dressed, the way they acted, the way they spoke, the way they lived. The Jewish, the Pharisees, the religious rulers looked down on them to such a degree that at times believed they were on the same level as animals. They had, they had tolerated them a little bit, allowing them in the Temple Mount. Some of them were, were God-seekers. matter of fact, these people are God-seekers because they're there for Passover. They're there because they believe in God, but they've heard about Jesus. And everything that I can find about this particular instance is they don't just wish to see Jesus. The Greek and commentators and history tells us that these Greeks actually wanted to follow Jesus. They want to put faith in him. Maybe they heard about Lazarus. Maybe they heard about the blind man. Maybe they heard about the, the water being turned to wine, or maybe they've heard about all of it. And these Gentiles want to put their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. What's critical about this moment is how Jesus responds. Look at verse 23. It says here, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Paul's right there for just a moment. That word hour is used more in the Gospel of John than any other book in the Bible. It talks about a particular point in time that Jesus was preparing for. He wasn't talking like it's 11 o'clock. He's talking about a time in his future that was coming. Now, all through the Gospel of John, over and over again, we see the hour had not come. Jesus says the hour has not come. The hour has not come. And then there's times where Jesus says, hey, there's an hour coming. There's an hour coming. Jesus was talking about his arrest, his crucifixion, and eventual resurrection. That was the hour that he was talking about. But at this moment, the first time in the Gospel of John, just so happens when these Gentiles, these Greeks show up, that Jesus says, the hour has come. Now, why would he say it now? I'll tell you why. His ministry, the impact that he's going to have is going to be far broader than the Jews. What Jesus is going to accomplish on that cross is going to take good news to the globe. I would dare say everyone in this room is probably a Gentile. I don't think we have any people here who are, who are Jewish by birth, but more than likely, the majority of people in this room are Gentiles. And the reason the gospel came to us is because Jesus meant for the gospel to come to us. Right here in this moment, right when these Greeks show up, Jesus says, now my hour has come. Notice what else he says. He says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it must remain alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus gives the illustration that his life dying is like a seed being planted in the ground. That seed's going to break open. The seed's going to die. But out of that seed is going to come a shoot. And out of that shoot is going to come fruit. And out of that fruit, guess what's inside the fruit? More seeds. Jesus says in response to these Gentiles, hey, I am going to die so that more of you can come into the kingdom. More of you can believe. But these people are the outcasts. These are the outsiders. Were you an outsider one time? I was. Maybe you still feel that way. 
When I came to faith in Christ at age 16, I was an outsider. The Bible says I was alienated. The Bible says that I was in darkness. The Bible says that, that I was apart from the kingdom of God. I would go to church with my parents. I had no clue what was going on. I would sit there and I would, I would try to listen, but listen to what happened. I was skeptical. I was very skeptical when I was, when I was younger. I still do. I still weigh things out. I still check the evidence. I still reason through things. But even when I was 14, 15, 16, I was skeptical. But guess what was happening? The skepticism was turning into cynicism to where I thought I knew everything. Not willing to hear about this man named Jesus. And finally, on March 22nd, at about 7 p.m. in the afternoon, I couldn't resist putting faith in Jesus anymore. I knew that if I didn't put my faith in him that night, that I'd probably never have another chance. These were the outsiders. I was an outsider. You were an outsider. Maybe you still are. Jesus died that you could find life and find peace and find joy. So we have Mary the worshiper. We have Judas the fake. We have the crowds looking for prosperity. And then we have the outsiders who come to Jesus to say, we believe in you. But there's another group of people I want you to see, and these are the religious skeptics. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. So Jesus, as John portrays it here in this gospel, he doesn't take us to Gethsemane like the other gospel writers do. He, he gives us a, a shadow of it here, and he says, he says here that Jesus is struggling with the whole idea of going and dying on a cross. And Jesus says, I'm going to accept it full and complete. I'm not going to pray that God would deliver me from this hour, but this is the hour that God has prepared me for. This is my mission. This is why I'm here. So, Father, glorify your name. And look at what happens in verse 28. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You know what happens there? Something very rare happens here. God speaks with an audible voice. In all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament combined, if you, if you read the Bible cover to cover, you're going to find that God speaks audibly very few times. In all of Scripture, in all of the years it's covered from Genesis to Revelation, that God speaking audibly is a very special, unique thing. But here, at this moment, God speaks from the heavens. And what does he say? He says... I have glorified it. In other words, I have glorified what you have done. God, Jesus has glorified the Father. And I'm going to glorify it even more when you die on a cross, when you fulfill your mission. God is going to receive glory in the death of the Son because the death of the Son is going to usher people into the kingdom of God, just like that seed that falls and dies brings forth fruit. Jesus' death on that cross is going to bring forth tremendous fruit. I am part of that fruit that is born from this moment. But look how the crowd responds. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it, they said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken. What's going on here? So, so God has spoken audibly, but the people who are there don't hear it as God speaking. Somebody says, oh, that was just thunder. Another person says, oh, well, that was just some angel speaking. What's going on here? Notice what Jesus says in verse 30. He says, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus says, the reason that God spoke is not for me to believe. I'm his son. I'm God in the flesh. 
The reason God spoke is so that you might have one more opportunity to lay down your cynicism, your skepticism, and put faith in me. God's speaking from heaven. If that's not enough to convince you, then what will be? But why didn't they hear his voice? Let me tell you where skepticism that turns to cynicism, let me tell you where that takes you. It takes you to a heart that becomes so hardened and so callous that even if God were to speak, you wouldn't even recognize it. These are religious people. These are the people who've been about the temple worship and the temple practices. They are the ones that's read the Torah. They are the ones that know the Old Testament. They were the ones that were raised, Moses, hearing from God on the mountain. And when God finally does speak to them, because of their unbelief, because of their hard-heartedness, they don't even recognize it. Folks, this is a very dangerous place to be. Paul talks about it this way in Romans 1. He says that, the heart can become so calloused in verse 18 and following in unbelief that God eventually just turns you over to yourself. He simply doesn't allow you to even recognize truth when it's being proclaimed. That's not because God is mean, it's because you've made a choice. And every time you reject the gospel, and every time you walk away from God's word, and every time you let skepticism move to cynicism, You get more calloused. You get colder in your heart. And the further you go with that, eventually, if God were to even speak from heaven, you wouldn't even recognize it. You'd say, oh, that must be a storm coming. This is not just for people who are lost. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, that's what it means to be lost. But this also can happen to people who've put their faith in Jesus. You can get so tied up in your schedules and so tied up in your technology and so tied up in your life that the idea of hearing from the Lord anymore is so foreign from you, you don't even, you want to, you don't even recognize it. If you're following Jesus, you should be hearing from God. Let me tell you what that sounds like. Some of those thoughts that run through your head. There's that other still small voice in your head that goes, that ain't right. When you use the Lord's name in vain, you get angry at work or at school and you use the Lord's anger name in, in vain through anger. And all of a sudden there's that, that moment that you said, man, I have, I, I've crossed the line here. Guess what that is? That's God speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit. We call it conviction. Or, or that place where you lie to someone to cover your own backside. You know it's not right, and you've got something in you that says, this is not right, I've got to make this right. Or you wrong someone, and there's something on the inside of you that's saying, you've got to make this right. You know you've got to offer forgiveness to that person, or you know you've got to seek forgiveness from that person. You know what all that is? That is the voice of God through the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And if you ignore it long enough, if you push it aside long enough, your heart becomes calloused as well. The idea of a calloused heart is the idea scar tissue. If you've ever been burned, um, when I was still working in industry, I used to do a lot of welding, a lot of metal work, and I was, the plant I was working at, I, I, I inadvertently grabbed a piece of metal that I had just taken a torch and cut the metal. I, I don't know, I, just, I hurried and grabbed it, and it burnt my thumb really bad right there. One of the most painful things that ever happened. I still to this day don't have any feeling in the surface of that thumb at all. I don't know if it's nerve damage or what it was, but I have no feeling in that thumb. I could put that thumb on the stove, wouldn't feel it. That's what it means to be calloused. Some of you, have, some of you work on a farm, you've got calluses on your hands. If you rub those calluses, you don't feel a thing, do you? 
That's where this group of people is. This group of people, these skeptics who've now become cynics, who now have got cold and different hearts, God speaks, they don't even read. This should have been a monumental moment. This should have been a moment where everybody falls on their feet before Jesus. That the God, God the Father is acknowledging God the Son. The Godhead Trinity is moving in this moment, speaking audibly, and everybody just lets it roll off their back like it's, well, just another day. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe nothing really impacts you anymore. One last group of people here I want you to see. It starts in verse 41. Actually, verse 42. In, in this, John gives us indication as to what's happening in the hearts of these skeptics who become cynics. They're getting more calloused, and then God says, okay, uh, you're not even going to be able to believe if I tell you because they didn't even believe that God's voice was speaking. So God begins to harden their hearts. As they unbelieve, he hardens their hearts. As they continue in unbelief, he continues to harden their hearts. And it's a vicious cycle that takes them further and further and further away from truth. And then in verse 42, there's another group of people I want to introduce you to. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. In other words, there were people out of the sect of the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, and the Sadducees, who, because of all that Jesus has done, recognize that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's the one that Isaiah was talking about. He's the one that Jeremiah was talking about, Zechariah. He is the Messiah, and they put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So we have Mary the worshiper, Judas the fake. We've got the crowd who's seeking prosperity. We've got the outsiders who've approached Jesus wanting to follow. We've got the religious skeptics. But look at this last group of people. They're the secret followers who, by the way, are not following at all. That's the paradox here. They have put their faith in Jesus as Messiah, but they are scared to death to come public with that because if they come public with it, they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. If they get kicked out of the synagogue, they lose their title, they lose their finances, they lose everything. They're going to be, well, they're going to be made fun of. You know who these people really are? They're cowards. They will not step out of the shadows because it's going to cost them too much to step out of the shadows. There is no way to follow Jesus in secret. I I tried to live that lie for a while. Right after I came to faith in Christ when I was 16, I went to my school, went to my high school, thinking everybody was going to be just as excited as I was about putting my faith in Jesus and coming to faith in Christ. I, I was naive. I got to school, I found out there were very, 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 very few people who was as excited as I was about following Jesus. And you know what I chose to do? I chose to go undercover. I chose to just go to church on Sunday and on Wednesday, and that was my, like, my, 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 my follow Jesus, love Jesus, raise my hand, public, that was my public outcry of worship inside that building on Sundays and Wednesdays. But boy, I'm telling you, I could switch that off pretty quick on Monday and on Thursday and on the football field and anywhere else I was hanging out with my friends. As a matter of fact, I I, I hate I have this testimony, but 
I had friends that I hung out with in high school that never put their faith in Jesus. And I lived right alongside them as a follower of Jesus, never told them about Jesus, and they died in car wrecks and drug overdoses. And as far as I know today, they are in torment. Because I tried to live one way on Sunday and one way during the week because what would happen during the week if I came out and told everybody, I love Jesus and I'm not compromising. I follow Jesus, have my Bible with me, take my Bible with me to the, <clears throat> to the lunchroom. No, I couldn't do that. That cost me too much. It cost me some status at the high school. Well, then when I get out and I graduate and I go to work, well, I can't do it at work either. I mean, come on. These guys I work with, these are rough guys. Works on a, you know, they work in construction. They, they're going to look down at me. They're going to call me a sissy if I come walking in here with a bottle. I tried that. I tried that route. I tried it. But you know what I found out? There's no such thing as following Jesus in private. There's no such thing as following Jesus in private. If following Jesus for you is simply what happens inside this building, you can relate to these folks right here in chapter 12, verse 42. They're going to the synagogue. They're doing all of their religious activities, but they dare not raise the name of Jesus because for them they could get stoned. They're definitely going to get kicked out. They're going to be maligned. They're going to be hated. Too much cost. Ultimately, they were cowards. For much of my early years in following Jesus, I was a coward, but no more. I came to this realization that I really don't care what anybody thinks about my love for Jesus, that I want to live my life the way Mary lived hers, in reckless abandon, laying my life out for the cause of Christ, not holding on to things like Judas, making it about me, but living for Jesus publicly, taking up the cross publicly. There is no bearing of a cross in private. I would imagine that some of you may have found a profile here this morning that maybe is close to where you're living. Maybe, maybe Mary is who you connect with most this morning. You're worshiping Jesus. And maybe you're the first one to raise your hand in here worshiping Jesus. Maybe you're the first one to be singing at the top of your lungs regardless if you're out of tune. And, and the, thing about, the thing about you is, is you'll do it at on your job tomorrow and not care a thing about it. Thank God for you. Keep doing it and help the rest of us to do the same. You keep giving as an example of what it means to really truly worship, because worship is not about what we get, it's about what we give. Or maybe, maybe Judas, maybe Judas is more in your wheelhouse. Not only not believing, but actively trying to tear down anyone who does. Maybe your mode right now of thinking is, I want to, I want to put to shame anybody who believes in this. Or, or maybe, maybe you're close enough to Jesus to have some of the terminology, but while you're out there in the world, you're just like the world, not living any different than the world, and bringing reproach upon the church and the name of Christ. Maybe Judas is more in your wheelhouse, or maybe, maybe it's these, this crowd who's saying, 
Give me something, Jesus. I'll follow you as long as you make my life comfortable. Or maybe you're the outsider who's just ready to put your faith in Jesus today, right now, at this moment, ready to put your faith in Jesus. You've heard, you've heard the stories, you believe they're true, and you're ready to move. Maybe you're still a religious skeptic. You've been around religion so long, you think religion is following Jesus. And you're now finding out that it's not. Or maybe you've chosen to live undercover. The reality is, is that all these profiles, all six of them, really break down into two categories, lost and saved, in light or in darkness. All six of those fall down into two categories. Everyone in this room falls down into two categories, period. And depending on which one of these profiles you align with may say a whole lot about where your heart is in relation to the greatest news ever told that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. So where are you today? Where's your faith today? What do you believe today? And how are you living that out? Father in heaven, your word is true. Every single word of it, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, every bit of it is true without error. It is authoritative. It is perfect. And Father, we are to surrender our lives to the truth, not twist it to make it say something it doesn't say, not to ignore it in cynicism and believe that we're right, but to simply say, if this is true, this demands a response from me. So, Father, it's during this moment of time as we worship together. It's at this moment of time a response is necessary. Some will respond by denying all over again. Some will respond with cynicism. Some will respond by walking away. Father, I pray that they know clearly that as they walk away one more time, Every time their heart grows a little colder, a little darker, and a little more calloused. But Father, I believe there's also some in the room and some watching online this morning that are ready to put their faith in you and have their life changed from the inside out. I believe there are others who have put their faith in you but need to start living that out publicly, no longer ashamed of the gospel, but to experience that power and that joy of simply no longer hiding who they are. You know the heart of every person in the room. Help them to see who they really are. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.